This is your spoiler warning. If you have not seen this movie and you do not want it spoiled for you, this is the time to turn it off. Beyond here, we are not responsible for your actions. And also... Second warning, we are not experts. We do not hold ourselves out to be experts, and these are our opinions. Well, actually... Well, actually... Well, actually... Well, actually... This is all the sports on screen with the Well Actually Sporting Club. Here's your hosts, Maria and Sasky. Hi, Maria. Hello from our mutual Hi. wardrobes. Hi, Sasky. Yeah, we're in wardrobes again, but separate ones this time. Yes. A few yes. hundred kilometers away. And, and they're actually wardrobes this time. Mine has a curtain. Yours has a door. We mm-hmm. are doing our uh, level best to be to provide some decent audio, but currently I think I'm just using every coat I ever have owned as noise dampening and my shoe collection. So we'll see how well that goes. We are serious podcasters, is what that means. I think the best. I think that the like the key to serious podcasting is telling people that you're serious podcasting. Mm-hmm. Just got to keep repeating it. Yeah, yeah. The more times you say it, the truer it becomes. And I know that is completely untrue. <laughs> However, we will go with it. Mm-hmm. So, like sport. It. It's been what has it been? Probably two and a bit weeks since we caught up to talk about a league of their own and what has been happening in the sporting world. Uh, since then, we still don't have the Toronto Wolf Pack back, which will be a situation that we will update you every week for, which will probably be the exact same answer for yep. the rest of time. But there has mm-hmm. been there has been a lot on in the sports world, and by a lot on when it comes to the NHL, absolutely nothing. <laughs> I like where your head's at. Yeah. Yes. So we are theoretically four and a bit weeks away from what the NHL hope is the start of the season, which cannot Mm -hmm. logistically be the start of the season. Correct. Yes. And kind of the same with World Juniors as well, which is still moving forward at this point. But Theoretically, Juniors are still moving forward. Uh, Whether the Canadian team will be attending or not, I guess, is another story. Depends how many of them show up with COVID in the next few days to add to the several that already have it. But hockey's not having much luck right now. You've got the Columbus Blue Jackets, who are in the midst of their own covid outbreak which is very reminiscent of the anaheim ducks all getting mumps at one point (laughs) yeah remember when that was going around the league that was a time entertaining time for all of us except for the people that got mumps yeah exactly it's one of those things where we're like was that how is that still a thing is that how is that still a disease that seems like something we would have solved at this point like somewhere with like polio and that but yeah, we have the Columbus Blue Jackets who are having a little bit of an outbreak, which, based on the history of several of their Twitter accounts and their apparent attitudes to things, it doesn't seem that surprising, does it? No, I feel like there is definitely a correlation there or a connection maybe that some people have caught on to um, <laughs> and maybe others just don't want to see because they also feel the same way based on what tweets people are liking so yeah i always go with the salute the like attitude of just don't like any tweets because then you can never get in trouble for it like just don't like you don't need to there's not enough benefit in it just 
stay yeah, away. Yeah, unless they're like pictures of like baby animals or, or yes. something like that. Yes, like the red panda at the Toronto Zoo, go for gold. Like that, mm-hmm. no, there's a yeah. hippo in Cincinnati that's just adorable, go for gold. In other like in other sports around the place, Formula One is nearly at the end of its season and so far I think we have two drivers and like four staff members out of all of it for the whole time who've come down sick, uh, which is great, but also hilariously both drivers from the same team. So I'm not exactly sure what those guys are up to. Yeah, yeah, it's very much yeah. I was like, no I, one I knows. No one knows what racing points <laughs> up to. Um ducking back into hockey, the NWHL has announced that they are essentially coming back to play a, a kind of a world junior style tournament series that's going to work as their season for the year because it's obviously not practical for the same reasons it is for everyone else, if not more so, uh, for them to roll through the season like they would normally. Yeah, I have to say the most, and this is terrible, but the most eye-catching thing about the announcement today was that it was in Lake Placid, which immediately made me think of the giant (laughs) alligator crocodile movie. And I was like, oh, I should watch that again. Anyway, happy that there's some sort of women's hockey coming back. It it always makes me think of, there's a movie in Australia called The Rage in Placid Lake. And the character's (laughs) name is Placid Lake. And that's the play on it. So that's what it always makes me think of. Which Was Was he a serial killer? No, he was just a very like awkward teenage boy young adult something like that with hippie parents it's been a while since i've seen it i think it was like ben lee or something was in it and as i said that i was like i actually think that person might just be a musician only australians know about yeah but look it's great to see it's i'm psyched to see the nwhl back because there's some of the best female hockey players in the world obviously we still have the tension between them and the pw pwpha um Mm -hmm. i had to remember what the abbreviation was and that's a whole other thing that right now we're like we don't really have time for that one because we've got to deal with covid and all of those kind of things so just be good to see women's hockey back and hopefully it, mm-hmm. it goes well for them that everyone gets through it they have good games it's safe it's really where our kind of like parameters for things are nowadays yeah and it's great that they're also being paid like a salary for a full year as well i know that's a big like a big plus for them so that's great to see yeah, that that's I, happening. I definitely saw that and I thought that, that was awesome. I'd love to know the financial logistics of that, of how those things are happening without a lot of the things that they or they or like sport derives income from. Mm-hmm. But the fact that these women are going to get that is, is super, particularly if we're asking them to take time off work to come and compete in this tournament in a time where it's such a difficult situation to be doing that in. Yeah. Definitely. So we'll see how it goes, but exciting. I'm sure a lot of people are looking forward to it, so it'll start the new year on a high note, hopefully. I didn't think I had... Actually, I was going to say I didn't think I had anything uh, to add about football, but today we learned that Diego Maradona mm-hmm. passed away at age 60. And from a footballing perspective, this is an iconic person, but I, you, you sent me earlier today a really great front page And I say Mm -hmm. this is, we are super well aware that there is, like many athletes, a world of complicated, conflicting elements when it comes to this man and his talent and his abilities and his personal life and all of those things. But from a simple sense, you sent me this really great French, I think, newspaper today. The the front page of it. Yeah, it's from L'Equipe, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just with the headline, I'll let you... 
Yeah. You finished. I, I think the French. No, I was like, no, you can go. Uh, the, <laughs> no, read it in French. Yeah, please. yeah. Oh, I don't. I did look at it and I was like, I'm pretty sure I know what this means. But then I went, yeah, you don't speak French. Let's not try it here. But the translation basically was God is dead. And I thought it was an incredible. And, and there was the artwork was a simple, iconic photo up playing for Argentina. Just like really well done in its simplicity and playing into all those ideas of what he was called and where he sat in the the football like ecosystem or pantheon of greats in that sense so it was a really you know great cover and I think we'll see over the next few days a lot of discussion not only about the man as a as a talented player but about a lot of those conflicting elements and how we navigate both of those things or all of those mm-hmm. things as we struggle yeah. with every time. Yeah, I think every time there is a kind of larger than life athlete or sports figure that mm-hmm. passes on, the same kind of discussion comes up of yes, they were this again like larger than life person in terms of their sporting career and all of that stuff, but obviously they were still a person too and as we all know, no one is perfect and some people make mistakes and then learn from them and then others just continue with worse patterns of behavior so yeah it's always for yeah it 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 very much is but linking from football into more football Football. and what we're talking about today so today we we're catching up on we're talking about a documentary called uh forever pure that came out in uh 2017 and it's very football focused before i tell like walk through what the documentary is about. How did you feel about this? How did you feel watching this documentary? Because I went to this documentary with you and sat beside (laughs) you and you're normally a very incredibly chill person to watch a movie with. You spend more time being mad at me for being on edge. Literally the jumpiest person I've ever met in the whole world. Yes. Yeah, we saw this at TIFF 2017 and so typically... When I was working there, I would, every year when the festival happens, I would go through the lineup and pick out the documentaries or any films relating to sport. And if they were sports documentaries, then like... We've seen some interesting sports movies (laughs) over the years. Yeah. And so in 2017, this was part of the lineup. And I remember usually how it would go is I would be like, okay, here's the things that we're seeing. I have our tickets, like, you better fix your schedule to match it. Yeah, it was never, there was not a lot of negotiation. And this would yeah. happen during my off season. So I didn't necessarily, I wasn't like, I have these things. It was, or it was towards the start actually of the new season. So it was a little bit of a balancing act. And I think this year was one of the years where it was a little bit harder for me to try and see some of the things. Mm-hmm. But this one was definitely, this one leaves a mark on you, I think. Yeah. I remember just informing that we would be going and this is what time it was and you better meet me there and bring snacks and all that stuff. And then we get into the screening and just sitting there, most of the time being very stressed internally throughout the whole thing. And usually when I go watch horror movies, I get stressed sometimes and also like sweaty, which is... Oh yeah, I know about that. I'm like, oh, (laughs) my hands. (laughs) But this one, I was like uncut gems level of stress for anyone who has seen that movie that where it's just like constant you're on the edge of your seat the whole time not because there's so much suspense but just because you have this impending sense of doom that something terrible is like one second away from that's why i'm jumpy because i feel like my entire life is that feeling of what's about to happen nothing absolutely nothing is going to happen but you're like 
most movies, you aren't on the edge of your seat. I was like, you're clearly not me watching movies. I think the last movie I wasn't on the edge of my seat for was like Coco, and that was because I was busy crying. Mm-hmm. But true. so to to if, to give you a bit of a, a bit of a rundown, if you aren't aware what this documentary is, Forever Pure is a uh, Israeli documentary made by uh, a lady called Maya uh, Zinstein. So we're both getting to look at it from a female director's perspective here, as well as some narratives we don't normally see and interplays we don't normally get in a lot of mainstream content. So she was freelancing for a TV show and she was assigned to follow a story and then she realized that it was was much bigger than this and so she went with that making this documentary. So basically Forever Pure is about a team called uh, Beitar Jerusalem uh, Football Club and they are the most popular team in Israel but they're also the most controversial team in Israel. They are the only club in the Israeli Premier League who had never signed an Arab player. So midway through the 2012-2013 season, which is what is covered in this documentary, the owner of the team, who is a Russian-Israeli oligarch, whose name, I'm just going to call him Arkady, because I cannot pronounce his last name very well, and I would you know, respectfully try not to butcher it. He organized a secret transfer with two Muslim players, bringing them in from Chechnya. Basically, at that point, the shit hits the fan. That's the, the most delicate way of putting it. This deal, it basically inspires the most racist campaign in Israel, Israeli sport. And honestly, one of the most racist campaigns I have ever seen or read about in sport. Yeah, I think this was like a new high, a new low. I don't know which. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was to the max, pretty much. And so, so basically, the club, the fan base, everything. It spirals out of control. And this the documentary is really about this one season and how this kind of famed club uh, reflects the current state of Israeli society, their identity, the politics, the money, all of those kind of things. And look at how racism and a lot of these issues are both destroying a team and how it's destroying a society from within itself. Yeah, I mean, are you saying that sports and society are entwined, Saski? We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves yet, but (laughs) it's going to be big if it's true, which I suspect it is. One thing uh, you wanted to mention, though, and that you had mentioned about documentaries themselves before uh, we get into the meat of this, you have some, I, I guess not opinions, but a framework when people are thinking about documentaries and the presentation of it and the facts of it. Yeah, so one of the things that I learned along the way and that I find helpful for me to remember is that when you watch a documentary, that it is a more objective presentation of a topic. It's not as scripted as like a Hollywood film and the elements aren't as cleverly crafted, I would say. um, Someone hasn't written the script as well. Exactly. Yeah. So while they present a more objective presentation of a certain topic, they are still subjective in the Mm -hmm. sense of like the editing and what material is presented, what is cut, that type of thing. And this took her four years to make. Mm -hmm. So just think of all the footage that would have been shot during that time. So it's just something to keep in mind of what was selected, what wasn't what was cut from the film, and who is presenting it. So basically everyone that is touching this film, whether it's like the director, a producer, an editor, cinematographer, anything like that, they all feed into the process of creating Mm -hmm. a film. And there's plenty of different perspectives there. And I've seen some documentaries or films that are under the documentary genre that are very one-sided on a topic. For this film specifically, 
I thought it was great. There wasn't, it was pretty just, this is what happened. Yes. In this specific time. But it also provided enough background with like actual TV footage and different things like that of, to support the point that it was making. There's a certain level of racism in this documentary that you can't edit to look bad. It is just what it is. Yeah, it's just there. And yeah, that's just something I always try to keep in mind because as human beings, we are subjective creatures. And even if you were to just put like a stationary camera down to film everyday people walking by, if they know there's a camera there, they're still going to behave differently, which like skews what objective picture you're trying to paint kind of thing. And I I think that's a really good thing for us to think about because we are going to watch a lot of documentaries in this time and they are stories that are going to be told by different people who have different investments in particular narratives, whether because it's their favourite narrative or they have an agenda or any of those kind of things. So it's something good for us to think about as we both look at this one and what we look at in the future. The The big kind of overarching question that we come to in this documentary beyond the idea of the intersections of things of racism religion feed into this idea of basically as a person how much do you have to hate something else (laughs) to be willing to destroy the thing you love the most for because of it or for it and how much must you love something to be willing to destroy it in your mind to protect it That's really the kind of narrative we're seeing in this film. You know, Mm -hmm. how much do these fans and this community hate the idea of what they view as Arab players simply because they are Muslim and their willingness to destroy the club that they have built their life around, that they identify themselves with because of that. Yeah, it's a very much of a, if you can't have it, then no nobody one can. can. Or if I can't have what I want, then no one can have. Yeah. And so, you know what I mean? So Exactly. We make the rules. Yeah. First things first, this headline. This headline, from a mile away, you're basic, you see it and you're like, there's some dog whistle, a lot of things in there. And really instantly the kind of tone and the topic of what this mm-hmm. is going to be about it's very, very identifiable language. Yes. Yeah, I think it was one of the first things where I was, oh, okay, here yeah. we go. <laughs> and, and, and the iconography of the film poster works with it to really what's coming in it. And it is drawn from banners that fans had mm-hmm. displayed in the stadiums for decades. So yeah. it, it, it isn't someone framing it. It is actual language that has come from these fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's out there, and I think it's still probably out there, to be completely I'm honest. I'm so, sure yeah. it's still out there. So this is based in the Israeli Premier League, which, for lack of a better term, is the Israeli version of every Premier League in every country. <laughs> they are ranked below Norway. They're a little bit above Kazakhstan, and I'm sure they probably could beat any of the teams in Australia. I'm actually not sure. It's just fun to pick on Australia for wow, that sense. that's harsh. I, don't, I wouldn't know enough for that. <laughs> The women's teams are good. Don't know enough Maybe about them. Maybe not the Matildas. Yeah. Yeah, the Matildas are good. The Matildas are good. So the league is very standard. You've got 14 clubs. You've got a promotion and relegation system, which the relegation plays a real storyline in this from the mm-hmm. idea of what are you costing your team and how does that go? Relegation is such a foreign concept to anyone that doesn't watch football for the most part because it just doesn't exist in so many other sports. Yeah. Yeah, there's no, like, 
tank it so you can get the best draft pick or no. anything. No, like, there's like, how do you feel like being in the league below you and having yeah. all of your players leave? Um, FC calm. Yeah, I'm so yeah. Scared. Yeah, yeah. Maria and I support a football team uh, that I believe we may have started supporting when they got relegated, which makes very little sense. We really liked the loyalty of their captain who decided not to go take millions of dollars elsewhere and just hang around and bring them back. Unfortunately, they came back, they survived, and they're also terrible now. So we don't know what's happening there. And it's a very... Relegation promotion adds a little bit of interesting to it, but that's that's not the point of uh, today. Uh, <laughs> so earlier you suggested that sport and politics and society they all intersect they, somehow they all intersect yeah like that take me hear people like take politics out of sport that doesn't exist that can't just happen. shut up and dribble yeah yeah so in this documentary how do you see that what's the big things that stand out for you as far as showing that is a absolutely incorrect like a, not upcentric but like acetation assertion about any of it one of the first things was as everybody knows who watches football or supports a certain team like you have the friendly rivalries through like the different leagues in the premier league or in argentina there's certain ones but and for a lot of people it's just like friendly ha we're better than you Mm -hmm. our team's better whatever but yeah they hate each other they're not going to set each other on fire Yeah, I think that the way this club was founded and the first kind of thing that stuck out to me was when their uh, PR person (laughs) was basically like, this was the club that represented the right wing for decades. And you're like, okay, they just said it. So And it it still represents (laughs) and it still represents the right wing. And and you have politicians in this saying this Mm -hmm. represents the right wing of the right wing. These are the diehard ultra right wing. They considered themselves the scrappy underdogs, all of those things, which is funny because they had been so, so dominant. But it also, in a way, that they do talk about their big rivals being the other club in the league who is predominantly or entirely Muslim and Arab and their Mm -hmm. hatred with that. And this kind of, not even just between teams, but between themselves and, and other identities within the community is very reminiscent of the Celtic and the Rangers rivalry, which reflects the difference between like the Catholicism and the Protestants in those communities at the time. It's actually uh, not funny because none of that is funny. But when uh, we were talking about this, it, it made me think of, I had a song that I knew as a kid growing up that my dad used to sing in the kitchen. My father is Scottish. And the basic, the line I could remember from it, it was that your, your mama was orange and your dad was green. And I had mm. no idea what that meant until I was an adult. And I was like, oh, that's what that means. And yeah. my family historically were Catholic and my granddad who didn't really watch football was like no we're Celtic that's our team I'm like you don't watch football he's like it's still Celtic I was like yeah okay cool he's like maybe Dundee FC and our both but still Celtic I was like okay <laughs> yeah and I think like the similar thing of the with religion playing into it like they Celtic also had or there was like that boycott of Catholic players until mm-hmm. 1989 when the Rangers actually signed a former Celtic player, which obviously caused a lot of drama, a lot of drama. and uproar. So this isn't like the first club to do stuff. This like is this, yeah, this I is guess, not the first but... club to use religion as a as a tool in making yeah. a point. Mm-hmm. Maybe not sure. 
a point that they've made in the best way, but a point nonetheless. And I, I, I think another thing that this, this documentary has shown us is how that sport and politics can't be separate because these kind of football hooliganism, this kind of ultras, they're not separating their sporting fandom from their political beliefs. They are one and the same. They are groups and communities that are allowing this kind of prejudice to to uh, grow and, and, and like stoking the fire with it because they are as a community that and they are supporting the fan in that sense. That idea, if you want to be a fan, you want to fit in, that's how you have to be, that a real fan is is part of this and a real fan, God, I hate the saying real fan, <laughs> you know, a real fan does that. Yeah, for sure. And it also doesn't help if you have, as in, using Italy as an example of like politicians that maybe aren't the most squeaky clean, mm-hmm. supporting a certain club or giving that club money and that type of thing. And it just spirals. That's not specific to Italy. That was just, no, no, that's just a good example, example I can think of. I am from Paraguay. Hello. <laughs> so it just spirals out of control from there. I'll be like, um, we are also bad at this. <laughs> yes, it's uh, it's a thing. I, I think the there was a good part in this movie where they were talking to some fans or a fan and he was talking about how that this group that caused this, that did this, represented a small subsection of their fan base, but it was the fan it was the group that were the radicals, that they had the territory, that they had the power, they had the voice, and they were so militant in a sense about it that's what everyone came to hold them against and the attitudes had been going for years and they were allowed to continue which is how Mm -hmm. we end up here yeah i think the number he said was it's three thousand people in this one thing and you're like okay but is anyone doing anything about it because yeah as you see throughout the film and we may touch on this later when you know we're talking about the different type or the type of fan that you see throughout (laughs) this movie people are raising their kids into this behavior and these like thought processes and it's just it just continues to perpetuate itself while the other fans seem to recognize that this isn't right but they're also not really sure what to do about it or maybe it's like that case of well i'm one person what could i possibly do I think we talked about politics in in this sense and the actual story of how this arose is based in politics. The mm-hmm. Akari Gatamak, I think that's how I'm saying it, he did not like football. He did not care for football. He wasn't loved that much by the fans at boring. this point. He finds it boring, which to be fair, sometimes it can be. <laughs> you love it, but it still can be. But he gets the idea of the battle and this and that. But the reason he owns this team, the reason he bought this team, was because he wanted to become the mayor of Jerusalem. And so he bought the team and invested in the team with the hope that because they had such a large fan base, he would be able to have run a bid for mayor and would succeed. Which didn't happen. No, he ran for mayor, but... And from the clips it showed in the film, it looked like he was pretty popular. Also because they, it looked like, I think they won the championship that year. Yes, they did. Yeah. Like yeah. that. And then in 2008, he only got 3.6% of the vote. And yeah. then he just disappears. Yeah. Like for four years. Yeah. He just doesn't invest money. He doesn't really care. You know, when you see the footage of him arriving at games, it's just fans yelling at him about how they hate him. And yeah. <laughs> would he sell the team and these things? And it's funny because he does not give a fuck this guy does not care he's go ahead hate me i own this football team still 
Yeah, interesting to note, I just as for me as an aside, as I was like looking through some info about him, his son owned Portsmouth. Am I saying that right? Portsmouth FC for a few years and was also involved in some kind of shady business dealings um, (laughs) with the club. Oh, yeah, because Uh, this guy sold the team and then ended up in jail, too, just as an aside. Also that. (laughs) So yeah, before he sold it, it was alleged that the Sun like asset stripped the club, and there's still a cl- out- outstanding claim, and investigations are still ongoing. And it reminds me, of like, wow, DJ. is that genetics? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it reminds yeah. you of in uh, a less VJ's less sinister, I think. So but, for like, for those who aren't sure what we're talking about, VJ uh, refers to uh, VJ Malia, who is or was the majority owner of what at the time was called Force India, what now you would know as Racing Point, which you will know next season as Aston Martin, which is actually the best of all of the three of the options. But he was an Indian businessman. He still is an Indian businessman. He just can't leave Britain at the moment because he doesn't have a passport. It's been taken off him while they investigate him again. And yeah, he's not the least dodgy of characters, but... This guy is in that vein. Uh, a little less dramatic, but he's very much in that vein. Yeah, but, and he... Le- sorry, go ahead. I was about to say, the reason he picked Bayatard, though, is this is a political powerhouse of a team within the Israeli community. Yeah, I feel like it's been used... The team has been used as like a political tool or weapon been as you will since the 90s at least with yeah basically one of their coaches states later in the film that whoever wanted to get into power would go through Bayatar because they had the most they had more uh, fans than all of the other teams combined yeah and they're the most I guess because they're the team of the underprivileged it created like a very like us against the world mentality kind of thing which yeah is pretty familiar I feel to a lot of sports to every sports fans aggressive uh manner yeah (laughs) but yeah it just it created that sense of like fans viewing any game that the teams played as like an actual war and Arkady Mm -hmm. does say at one point that he understands at a subconscious level that it's a clash between different groups of people. Mm -hmm. So it's all about that. Whenever there's opportunity for humans to create that us versus them mentality, it's like a primal instinct where we separate and divide into groups and then one has to be better than the other one. And yeah. This, so he tries to make this political run and it doesn't work and he stops caring really. And then he needs to make some economic ties with, of all places, Chechnya. And sports <laughs> diplomacy is, we've all seen sports diplomacy. We know programs countries run or teams that go certain places or all of those kind of things used as a tool to sell the images of countries, particularly when they're trying to tidy up reputations and things like that. The World Cup is going to Qatar that is a master exercise in that. Yeah, it's going to Qatar and also at a completely different time of year because we want to make it work for them. Yes, but we can't take it to Australia because there's not enough whatevers there. I don't know. <laughs> there's too many spiders, that's why. Okay, that's true. <laughs> yes. Every time I say that, I'm like, I've only been bitten by spiders twice. And I was like, that's two times too many. <laughs> so he's going, he's decided... Because he wants to make business ties, he's going to take this entire team 
to Chechnya in the middle of the season. Yeah, and that's after he disappeared for four years. And I think the film shows him coming to one of the games after they've been winning in like the early kind of stages of the season. And then January 2013, and he's a cool middle of the season. I've just come back. Everyone hates me. We're going to go to Chechnya. Yes, and it's not like he's just rolling into Chechnya. He's like rolling into Chechnya to hang out with the head of the Chechen Republic, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, who you may know from being picked on by John Oliver on our TV shows over his cat, who is quite a character, especially in the kind of like brutalist human rights abusing leader sense. So we see him hanging out with this guy. They're having a dinner. They're watching the game. They're like talking about match fixing and those kind of things. Like it's a very jarring change and none of the players are 100% sure what's happening or why they're all very comfortable with it either. Yeah, they're very uncomfortable and it feels like it was a surprise to them. And then on the plane, they're like, we've heard they don't like us here, like where we're going. I'm sure it'll be okay. And then at this lunch or dinner or whatever it was, the the head of the Chechen Republic is, we want to develop economic ties with the Jews. And we want, oh, okay. cool. we want to improve our image and ties with other countries through sport. We think that's probably the best way to do it. And you're like, oh, there's I a lot of like, other okay, things well, you could do too. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, he was honest, but also no. Yeah. That's not, no. no. So I think we will expand on a lot of these bits uh, a bit further on when we talk about, I guess, the main, like, sub, not something, but main theme of this documentary, which is racism and the racist behavior within this community and politics feeds into that but we wanted to have that little discussion just about the idea that politics is in no way ever able to be separated from sport and particularly not in this case there were some other interesting things though that we noted or crossed my mind and one of the ones that I found almost entertaining in a sense is that we look at football and we look at sport and we look all of these things and particularly these people these fans and it's all about that kind of like heteronormative masculinity they're like tough and they like don't want to they they have these things that they hate and they want to be seen this day and all of this right it's that very identifiable manly kind of culture they're building and then when you actually watch it and what they're chanting it is 3,000 men chanting, I love you, at another man. And you're like, this is... Shh, don't tell them. You're like, I feel them. like you haven't looked... You, your brain is not letting you, like, look at this. But it, it was really interesting because it was, in some places, very visual because you're seeing them chant and their arm gestures and you have the players in the foregrounding and that. And it's a very interesting contrast. But it's, I guess, an interesting contrast, too, about the acceptability of these kind of displays of more like emotional behavior, but only within the context of sport. Like it's okay in sport. Yeah. And I think that even can bleed into the actual players who are playing with like, you slap the other guy's ass or whatever the case <laughs> so may be, but that's, like- that's totally fine. Or you like, you kiss someone after a goal, totally fine. But as soon as it's like off the field, that's not okay and it's weird and you're weird and yeah there's such a there's such a changing standard or acceptability of what is 
okay to what is what kind of fits within that idea but I just thought it was I found out something very interesting to consider in that light because it really was a documentary that was so much defined by masculinity and their idea of it and what they were enforcing also with this behavior but linking from that into talking about uh not the same but correlated gender there's no women in this documentary there's pretty much no women yeah I remember first of all when we watched it the first time thinking that it's insane that a woman was allowed to make this a hundred percent out into the world and the level of access that she had Mm -hmm. uh, which I'm sure could I'm sure it was an ongoing struggle to get this film made and then yeah just within the film itself I think you see the one Chechen player his mom yeah you hear the maybe one person's wife you hear the filmmaker's voice Mm -hmm. but you only see the mom those are the only two women that you hear in this documentary a couple of times I actually paused it to look at the stands and there wasn't, there was no, there's not women there. And this is not a situation where they're not allowed to go, but the actual, mm-hmm. the, the, the subset of the ultra group, which this focused on, didn't have women in it or didn't show women as part of it. Yeah. And I think it might be something worth noting is that it's not to say that I'm sure there are women in the community that have those same feelings. A hundred percent that type of thing so we're not just being like oh it's all the men that are no but this is the way that Um, they but they're the most visible in this yes yeah they're definitely the most visible in this instance i think yeah and it yep i I was just gonna say it's hard to find a woman throughout the whole film completely i think one of the other most jarring things that came from the kind of gender and its role within this is also some of these fans positioning of their attitude to women. And by women, there is a scene where you are talking with, or they are talking with the chairman, who is talking about fans standing out the front of his house and yelling Mm -hmm. at his face about what they will do to his daughter, who is, I think, five or seven or something like that in this. And you are looking at the people. They are showing you do this, yelling her name and what they're going to do. And it's graphic. And I absolutely cannot get myself to repeat it. So you will have to have, you will have to watch the documentary. It's horrifying to watch people who are grown men, grown men with young children with them, grown men who probably have daughters in ex- the same age, which obviously is not a, when everyone says, I have daughters and sisters, you're like, no. But like, still on that point, like, they are standing there and it is horrifying to see that is an attitude that they think is okay yeah and the people that were standing out front a lot of them were grown men but there were also like teenagers there Mm -hmm. and I'm like again you're teaching the younger generation that it's absolutely okay to yell this type of graphic Mm -hmm. awfulness at someone just because you don't agree with what they did and and I feel like we've also seen a lot of that in North America in the past four years specifically yep um, and it's become a lot more acceptable to do that but it's still yeah it's very hard to watch yeah it's really it's just a difference of opinion you're like no it's abuse mm-hmm. about a difference of opinion those are different things yeah and the chairman seemed less worried about the fact that they had to check his car for a 
potential car bomb. Yeah, they were like, then they taught him how to check his car for bombs. Yeah, and he was like, I did it. Uh, but like the part where they're just yelling and screaming outside his house and they had like banners and like all of this. Yeah. And uh, what are they called? A megaphone? Yeah. They had megaphones, yeah, was... they had drums and it was just, and, and the chairman in this is you know, a long-term player, executive, loves the team, seems like a really good, sensible guy who's just, what is happening? Yeah, he was a beloved player, too, when he played for them. And then he was like, yeah, this is how they feel about me now. Like, they've completely turned because I'm not yeah. doing what He was very much like the, the, like, beta epitome of the expression that's nice guy tries hard, loves the game. It was like, nice yeah. guy tries hard, just loves his team. But it was, he, he didn't have any involvement in this decision. So essentially, this decision was made by the owner of the team for the sole point that the team had never had Muslim players and he knew if he brought them in, this would cause some form of, in his words, he said it will help hold up a mirror to society. This man does not have altruistic goals. I'm sure that's what he thinks it is. Really, I'm sure he was just trying to start shit. It was weird. He just had a little smirk on his face the whole time. Yeah. And I was like... It was smug as shit about it. I think you're lying to me, but I'm not like... It also... Some of the things you say them so matter-of-factly that it also feels like the truth, but I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. The... So so he didn't tell management that this was happening. He did not tell the, the team president. He didn't tell the coach. He didn't tell anyone that this was happening. They all found out when their phones exploded with text messages and... The first newspaper article about it, or the headline, didn't position it as Beata Jerusalem signs to football players, doesn't, has two new signings, has two new signings from here. It literally says Beata Jerusalem signs like two Muslims. That was mm-hmm. the headline. Didn't mention football, didn't mention anything else. It just was, that was the kind of line. Yeah, and I think that from there it just evolved into we've never signed Arabs, we don't want them here. And These guys are from Chechnya, by the way. Yeah, and it you have to take a moment to think about... There was one fan that talks about, like, that he's aware that Muslim does not equal Arab. And how, like, they know that not every Arab person is a terrorist, but also they still went along with it. Yeah, they're like they're like we know, but even so, we yeah, don't we, do this kind of thing. And you're yeah, like, oh, we just okay. don't want them here anyway. We know this, but yeah, it's very. There's a couple of scenes where they have some cuts of talkback radio, and it's just I think someone asked someone like, "Would you let your daughter marry an Arab?" And it just devolved from there because they were talking to members of this ultra group. But you're right, they they didn't really draw this distinction, and the players themselves pointed that out, or the Chechen players themselves pointed that out that. This hatred they had of them didn't necessarily correlate with what they were, but that they had then just expanded that to cover the basis of their religion as well. Yeah, and the chairman also at one point with the, the I think at one point they had a banner up that was, it said like, forever pure, and he was like, we actually can't say that about ourselves he's like when you consider everything that like the jewish people have gone through in the past however many thousands of years he said we can't we should be the last people that are saying that type of thing too that are holding up this type of hate against another religion or people group or there is an argentinian player on the team who does raise that point he is a little bit of comic relief he is a very animated person but he does raise that point about 
how cultures who have experienced certain things could have certain behaviors. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I thought the whole time at first, the first time I watched it, that he was drinking wine. <laughs> and I was like, this is a mood because he was just like, I don't know what their problem is. I don't have a problem with anyone. I'm friends with everyone and sip on. And then I realized the second time it was water, but it should have been wine. Is what I'm saying. I liked with him too, that he was very unafraid to call out everyone else on the team that had mm-hmm. not stood up. Because one thing you do see in this is that there is really only one Israeli player who stands up for mm-hmm. these guys. And it's not even necessarily like he's outspoken about it. He's just a human being about it. Yeah, I think it starts with, I'm assuming we're talking about the captain. Yes. yes. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> it starts with the press conference where obviously he's supposed to be like, welcome. We're so happy to have them here. And we look forward to playing alongside them and hope they can help the team and all of the standard. Yeah, and he sells it. Spiel. He's great at it because I'm sure he actually believes it. Yeah, and immediately after that, the fans like turn on him. And he's, I was just doing what I was told. Why am I getting in so much, like, why am I getting so much hatred directed towards me? But then I also think he realized at that point of they're just people. Yeah. They're just football players. I think he was a really interesting character because you could see the distress that it was causing Mm -hmm. him to have so suddenly had a 180 from this beloved captain, goalkeeper, icon of the team. He was the heart and soul of the team. And the next day... There was fans chanting that they hoped he was dead, that they hated him, that they hoped these things happened. And there's a couple of scenes where you can see him hearing them and just you can see his face and he doesn't know what to do because he's, I didn't actually do anything. I did the right thing. And Mm -hmm. this is where I now am. And I like the part where he never really said, I regret what I did. He was very like, "I, I did the right thing. This is the kind of thing like he never was like I wish I hadn't done that which was good to see because he knew he was in the right in this sense but you watched him slowly get by uh, I guess the fan base at least get more and more isolated get more and more alone and more withdrawn and that kind of like pushing him to the side in, in this narrative of the team yeah and the different like shots that were filmed of him really showed that too because at the beginning you see him they're all like oh can I get a picture with you all the fans at their small little training ground and then after he stands up and does like the press conference and says we hope they can help the team and welcome and all of that stuff all of basically after that unless the fans are screaming at him it's just like shots of him sitting alone eating cereal in his apartment yeah yeah it's very and he looks so sad and i was like oh gosh but they do set it up very well in a visual sense because the opening scenes of it show these fans like practically almost like tearing his shirt off him Mm -hmm. like in like just so excited and he's like being interviewed and like, like half talking to them all at the same time he's clearly like the heart of it and then the final scenes are fans abusing him for winning the game that stopped them getting relegated. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. fans are happy that they didn't get relegated, but they spent the whole game they abusing him. him in the process. <laughs> I was like, maybe don't abuse your goalkeeper. Like, this seems like a poor idea for anyone who's ever seen football. Yeah, it's true. And I think, like... The Argentine player saying that he was friends with everyone, he also made like an important point in one of his kind of like interview pieces where he mentioned that like Ariel had made an effort, but all of the other guys just didn't. They didn't do anything 
really negative or positive. They were just like status quo. And I think that also brings up an interesting point of within society, the people that say, oh, I'm I'm apolitical. That's not a thing. Like, I just I don't. I don't want to get involved in that. I'm just here apolitical to, is the like, way to football. say that you have enough privilege that you don't actually have to be concerned about things. Yeah, and that's pretty much what it felt like the other guys were doing. Like they didn't want to get involved either way because I feel maybe on some level they felt bad because these two like Chechen players were obviously struggling. Oh yeah. But at the other point, like they don't also want to risk being isolated like Ariel and having the fans hate them as well. And that's the that's there's an interesting point in that because there is a there's a guy that we see in it, Karip, and he is from the community. He's grown up around Bayatai. He uh, grew up in the East Stand with this group of ultras. His brother is one of the leaders in the group. He shares their opinions. And so mm-hmm. you see a scene where they're talking to Ariel and he's leaving and he's saying, you can't go against this like the team like why would you go against this the team will just like bench you or suspend you or something like that you can't have an opposite opinion that's just stupid and then this kid does and he has this opinion and he gets Good old facebook yeah statuses. and he gets <laughs> suspended for it but what you then see as it progresses as he comes back in and this kid was a borderline player he had come into the team because they didn't have money they needed to look to the local community for local players who were affordable he'd been given a chance this kid isn't a superstar but as it progresses through the documentary how more and more popular he is because this fan base this group identify him as someone who supports them who is their person who is backs them versus the team yeah and because that fan base ultimately called la familia by the way i feel like that's pretty translatable but in english that is the family they have all the power out of the fans like it might be not the majority of the fans but they are the most that minority still has the most power and I i think the interesting kind of i guess juxtaposition in that is is that Ariel says, you can't speak against the team. It's not the right thing to do. You don't have these opinions. And he doesn't, right? Because he doesn't have that opinion either. But then this kid speaks out against the team, gets suspended. And what at the end of it is that he's become incredibly popular. And the subscript of the movie tells you that Ariel has left the team, has gone somewhere else. And this kid has become the youngest captain of Bayatar. So the president has been fired you've got rid of your captain your coach is gone and you have now made the kid who supported the racist ideology of your like militant fan base is your captain so actually at the end of the day ariel's wrong in this one in the big picture of things while still Mm -hmm. being unfortunately yes yeah 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 and i think something that maybe we haven't touched on yet is the how the Chechen players reacted through all of this. I felt like so the whole time, bad for them. Yeah, I was, I felt so bad. And I was also just waiting for something really bad to happen mm-hmm. throughout the whole film, only because at one point, and this is a spoiler. I mean, right I think now, this whole documentary is a spoiler, really. <laughs> this whole a show is. Um, so we have a spoiler alert. Yeah, they actually burn the clubhouse down. Yes. and, and Trophies, everything. And, that, and I was like... It just it leads yeah, into the I was question for we something started bad with. to happen to the players. Yeah. Yes, it does. You know Perfectly that idea of that. these fans hated these two players, these two Muslim players, so much that they were willing to burn the entire history of their team down. 
the entire history, yeah. every trophy, all the jerseys, everything that they had, the entire clubhouse, nothing is salvageable. It's mm-hmm. gone. And they don't regret it because they still think that they were in the right. And they also know that they're untouchable too because nothing happened to them. Yeah, yeah. They're, they are they are incredibly untouchable in this whole thing because you see at the end of the day that these players leave and that the club has never signed an Arab or Muslim player since. Like, they won the battle, essentially. There is that moment in it where one of them scores and it's the mm-hmm. first goal he scored and the fans boo him. He is celebrating. <laughs> his teammates are celebrating with him. Everyone's stoked. Yeah. And the fans booing, and then they leave. Yeah, the East Stand starts to leave, and they have their chant going. And, he, like, his response was just like, okay, see ya. Which I think, what else is he supposed to do, really? Yeah. But it, I don't know. I but, just felt so bad for them the whole time. You see these fans leave, and you're like, okay, we don't need you. The next game, there was no fans there. There was 200 people yeah. there. This group mm-hmm. has through their power, through their intimidation, through all of these things, talked, got nearly every single person who would have been there not to go. It's a mm-hmm. empty stadium. Yeah. For more than one game. Yeah, and then at that point, that's when Kriaf posts the Facebook status of, it's not the same without you. Mm-hmm. At which point, they're like, oh, like, he misses us. And then they all come pouring back in because... You know, they come pouring back in for the game where they could get relegated Mm because their attitude was like we love this team and we don't want to see them get relegated but we still hate you guys and you were like (laughs) there is such a kind of like cognitive dissonance in this way that you are going um about it one thing one thing i did see that only in a in a vaguely amused in a dark humor sense there is a scene at about the 26 minute mark where there's a few seconds and you're watching all the fans going in and you're standing behind a police officer and i recognize this because i have had to do this before there is a police officer standing there with a binder of mug shots flicking through it and looking at people so most leagues teams stadiums have binders some of them actually have facial recognition but most have just a binder and it has the people who have been suspended fined banned all of those things the problem is i found it incredibly difficult to enforce in a ground of a thousand people and i know it failed miserably one day and i have the flare burns to attest to that but i can't imagine the futility of doing it with that many people like you're flicking through and you're just like i was watching this person do this i was like man this guy knows he's fighting a losing battle but also you saw a lot of them maybe not at games but when they came to the fields and that just rolling in like full balaclava mm-hmm. you're like oh if you're going to watch a sporting game and you bought a balaclava like you're not doing this with pure intent like yeah there's something going on there and yeah i can't imagine being that cop to flip through the yeah no it's it's you're, you're just like, like good luck to you yeah sir. you're just um. like i'm doing this because someone has told me to and it just it doesn't look <laughs> i'm just um, gonna pretend and keep flipping the pages like <laughs> i i think when it came to the chechen players the one thing i think that stayed with me was the fact that these guys didn't speak hebrew they did not know what was being chanted at them in the moment they did not know what was being yelled at them in the moment 
but they knew the sentiment. There was a scene where, where he gets into a half fight with someone in the stand, and I don't think they understand what each other is saying, but he knows from the, the kind of body language, the, the tone, all of that, how this person feels about him. They know how these people feel about them. And that, I was like, that had to be so impossibly hard. No matter how much you were trying to be this, this that had to be like excruciatingly painful to go through. Definitely. And I think it must have, it was obviously wearing on them throughout the season because throughout the season, the team had won, I think, seven matches in a row and they were climbing in the standings and they were doing so well. And then immediately, as soon as they signed these Chechen players, they started losing like almost every single game. And I was like, is this real? Is this, is this part scripted? Because this seems like too coincidental to bring in these two players that everyone hates and it's not like they were bad players and then the whole team starts losing every single game like you couldn't have made it more terrible for them and for and- the most part they were pretty quiet and diplomatic about everything and we're just like yep like we know we have to be here until the end of the year we're gonna do what we can and then like they went straight we from the final on. game to the airport yeah they were like and they were Great. literally like, we, bye, guys. Okay, bye. They were yeah. like thrilled to be getting back on a plane. And you're like, I can't blame you guys. Like, yeah. I really can't, I can't blame you. The part where they were winning and then losing obviously is is the factual narrative, but it does work as such an interesting kind of like film element with mm-hmm. that good and then bad kind of elements of it. Something else that I noticed and that I really, I quite liked in the documentary as far as visuals and her kind of trying to tell um, a story that showed similarities as well as differences. You do see throughout it quite a few shots of each of the players, the Muslim players and the Jewish players, going about adhering to their faith, praying, mm-hmm. going through these practices. And the way that they shot it was very much in a way of being like, these are similar. These are people who are the similar, who have the same feelings about this thing that is important to them. And Mm -hmm. I liked that visual connection of highlighting that similarity over what was being presented as differences. But there is also a good scene where the Ariel invites one of the Chechenian players to uh, come and they are doing some form of a prayer group or something along those lines. And he invites him to come and he does. I don't know if he knows fully what's exactly happening and they're working through their limited same language, but it is showing that these players in a lot of ways at least definitely him and the argentinian guy who's very chill with everything <laughs> who's just like yo i'm here like they this narrative of how they should feel about each other was definitely constructed outside of them mm-hmm. it was very in that scene you're talking about i think they needed a quorum yes for that's whatever what it, was. it was yeah just like a certain number of people so they all went down and it was just very, you're on a road trip with mm-hmm. your team mm-hmm. and everyone's hanging out in the, and lobby, you're in the lobby or whatever yeah. it is. Yep. Yeah. And you're like, okay, I'm obviously going to go hang out with them too because this is yep. my team and we're all down there. And it felt more like those differences didn't matter exist as much. Yeah. Or yeah, they didn't matter because he was just like, yeah, that's fine. This is my team. And and you see when they are partaking in their what the prayer that they are doing, he is standing there and he's on his phone. And when they start, he stops and he mm-hmm. watches what they're doing with respect. I think a kid comes up and asks for an autograph and he does that. But then he goes back to standing there watching what is happening with respect. And I was like, that's that's the thing. Like these people don't understand each other, but they understand each other. 
Yeah, and one of the whole thing of just trying to fit in with your team, too, the other Chachin player, he's 19. He's so young, and he looks even younger than that. I feel like the standard yeah. phrase is like, he looks like he's 12. But anyway, He does. So young and just very almost childlike in a sense of he was just like, I was sent here. Yeah. Sticks very close to the other player and is really just like unsure about things. I don't know why they hate us but I'm just going to do my best and play. And then there's also that scene where I think the coach is talking or the chairman, one of them, where they go out for a practice and they're like, it's just football out there. Like, it's not you're Muslim and I'm Jewish. It's just football and we're practicing and kicking a ball around. Yeah. And I think you see that kind of, I guess, end point in a lot of documentaries or movies or things where that narrative comes back to the part where it is at the end of the day about going on a field and playing a game and in that tiny segment of the game itself in progress the Mm -hmm. rest of these things don't exist the game doesn't exist uh, without them in a context but the game itself in that bubble of those players on the field is just the game yeah especially when it's like among members of the same team like practicing i think when you get into an actual game situation it changes once again, especially with like anthems and all of that type of thing now. But um, especially when it's two clubs in the same country. But yeah, it for a moment, it just felt like that pure enjoyment of like teammates Mm -hmm. practicing something that they both like to do and like towards a common goal of they're both there to play football and to win. If you were to, as we, we've gone through the big key kind of parts of this, and just to draw us back together, if you could position this, or you could say summarize to you what this film tells you, or what it shows you, like how would you frame it? I think it's, it's like what it would look like if you let every fan base in the world get out of control. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> like an ode to extremism, almost. Yep. Because you know that there is probably far right and far left fans of every team and there's supporter groups that are very vocal already in every fan base in every league so yeah I think that it's just really a picture of how entwined a team can be within Mm -hmm. like its city or yeah that kind of political Mm -hmm. sphere yeah I, I think, and, and this also comes from a line that Katie uses in the thing, that it holds a mirror up to society. So it's only showing what already exists. Mm-hmm. You know, this behavior is not new, it, it, it exists. But I think the thing, and you touch on it with the, the phrasing like an ode to extremism, the thing that I think it showed to me is that how sport can make certain opinions palatable and mm-hmm. acceptable almost, and how it can be used as a tool to further those narratives and opinions and this and that because you're thinking maybe these fans didn't share this and they became part of this and now they've shared like it's very much like sport is such a powerful tool and we always think about it for good it teaches Mm -hmm. us this and it teaches us that and you're like it can also teach the other side and here's what that looks like and you need to be uh, aware and you need to do something about it when you see it first Yeah, because if you're part of La Familia, you're not going home at the end of the day to, I don't know, you're not going to go home and behave the exact opposite from what you were behaving at the stadium. Yeah, maybe you're not shouting all of those ugly things, but chances are that whatever your core beliefs are, they follow more closely along to what you have been yelling at the stadium 
or what you're discussing with your group of friends that are in that particular fan group than the opposite of that. Yeah. So, I look, I loved this documentary. When I watched it again the other day, uh, and I would say we watched it, but I watched it with subtitles and you drove a car, it's horrifying and fascinating and brilliant all at the same time. It's an incredibly well done documentary and it's, I can't, as pretty much everything that we are going to talk about, I can't recommend seeing it enough. Mm-hmm. It is very interesting. It was on Netflix recently. I don't believe it still is in Canada. It may be in other countries. You can get it on Apple TV. I believe it's also on Amazon in some places. Mm-hmm. So it is relatively accessible. And I would encourage you, if you have the chance, to check it out. It is a really great uh, documentary. On that note then, I am going to go back to drinking my wine. You are probably going to do the exact same thing. Probably. My wine's gone. Both of us have Um, to actually get out of our cupboards. Yes, we have to get out of our cupboards. My legs need to stretch and my eyes are burning before we sign off. The new owner of the team. Yes, so they got sold because Arcades, I'm done. Let's go. Yeah, at the end, the film, it's an abrupt ending in a sense of like, the season ends. The two Chechen players are like, okay, bye, and leave on a plane. The season ends, yeah, they're like, we're out of here. Arkady sells the team. He basically washes his hands. It's all like sub, it's like all like the, the credits um, and I, telling you what's happened. Yeah, once the credits start to roll, telling it's telling you what's happening. And I think later he goes to France and goes to jail or something like that. Anyway, so the new owner is... I'm probably going to butcher his name, so apologies in advance. As people who've had uh, our I names butchered, I feel we can, we're okay <laughs> with that. I believe it's pronounced Moshe Hogeg. That looks good he to me. Is, he is a founder of Alignment Blockchain Hub and other ventures like Siren Labs and founded Singularity. Those all sound like made-up words to me, but that's what his LinkedIn profile said. Basically, he is a serial entrepreneur in the technology sector and an Israeli tech venture capitalist. That is a lot of that is a lot of that is a lot of terms and buzzwords as you mm-hmm. said. When you do search his name, it is a couple of articles about him being sued. So it is an interesting kind of where are we here? There is an there was an accusation that he misappropriated funds to buy the team and various other things, but at the end of the day, it, the team was sold and he was Israeli. So he has a lot more of a, I think, a personal investment in the mm-hmm. team and the status within the country and all of those kind of things. I don't know how good they still are, though. I think they're, they're a little like middle of the league lately. Yeah, I think obviously they're still like the one of the most popular teams, but not doing so well in the standings. But yeah, from what it seems like is even just from the credits rolling and the different information that was coming up is that it's back to normal. Yeah, back now to... Now that this group of players has moved on, they're just back to like... Super racist. You know. Yeah. Yeah. You're like barely concealed, not at all concealed racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's... It was tough to watch, but it was very enlightening. And as as I said... We can't recommend it um, enough. We hope you do give it a, a look. If you do, we would love to hear your thoughts on both what, what you thought and what you thought about what we are discussed about it. But on that note, for a second episode, which we actually have done, so we are like moving in the right direction. I am Saski. I'm Maria. And we will catch you next time.
Bye.